and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. Last time we talked about the Council of Constantinople. This was the conclusion of the difficulties that the church was having with the heresy of Arius, Arianism. And after that council, Arianism really dies out in the seats of theological power. There are still huge pockets of Arianism that are are quite important in terms of global politics. Big areas like Spain remain Arian. But in the historic patriarchates, the place where all the theologians are, Arianism is pretty much a dead issue. The world sides with the Orthodox rather than Arianism. And that's basically the end of the story of heresy in Christianity. Just kidding. It continues. We're going to be talking about the primary places at which theology is done in the 4th century, 5th century. So you have these historic, what are called patriarchates. They're these places where really important bishops live. So all over the Christian world, everywhere you go, there is a diocese. The bishop is the head of that diocese. But when bishops get into conflict or when bishops need a chief bishop to preside at a synod or something, then you have these five seats of power. And actually, before the Council of Ephesus, which we're about to talk about, there are really four seats of power. At Ephesus, they had a fifth, but it's a pretty obvious fifth. So you have these places which are apostolic foundations, for the most part, with one exception, which means that an apostle or one of the disciples of Christ actually went there and they founded the church there. So there's this sense that there is this continuous strain of very authentic teaching, which comes directly from one of the apostles or one of the disciples. So that's the case for four of them, four out of the five. And then they are also the chief cities of the Greco-Roman world. These are the centers of power. These are the centers of wealth. These are the centers of learning. These are the centers of commerce. These are the big cities. And that is also true for four out of the five. The outliers are two different outliers. So in terms of apostolic foundation, you have Rome, founded by St. Peter. St. Peter goes there, is teaching, is martyred there. It is this Petrine Sea. It is a Sea of Peter. Antioch, also founded by St. Peter. St. Peter goes to Antioch before he goes to Rome. He teaches there. He preaches there. He founds the church. He begins this lineage of bishops. So you have Antioch and Rome, these two seas of Peter, these two dioceses founded by St. Peter. So if you want authentic teaching, go to the church that was started by the rock on which the church is founded. You also have Alexandria. Now, Alexandria isn't founded by Peter. It's actually founded by St. Mark. So St. Mark, who writes the Gospel of Mark, we're told in early church sources, he was St. Peter's right-hand guy. He was the translator of Peter. He followed Peter around. He heard him preach day in and day out. And he's decided to write down the preaching of Peter. And that document, the preaching of Peter that he writes down, that is known as... the gospel of Mark. 
So Mark goes, he leaves Rome and he goes to Alexandria in Egypt, and it is there that he founds the Church of Alexandria. So it's kind of a Petrine see. It's kind of founded by St. Peter because you're still getting the teaching of Peter via Mark. The one that gets added at Ephesus, and we'll talk about how it gets added and why, is kind of a no-brainer because it is the place where all the apostles began. It is the place where Jesus preached and taught. It's the place where Jesus was crucified. Of course, that's the city of Jerusalem. So that is one of the historic patriarchates. And then the last one, from an apostolic perspective, is a very odd choice. This is the new city of Constantinople. This is a city from the late 320s, early 330s, before it was completely rebuilt and redone in the fourth century, it was just like a small, not very important town. There's very little evidence that the apostles preached there. Maybe Philip did, maybe Andrew did, but it's not like this great apostolic see. Instead, it's where the emperor lives. And so it's where the emperor is going to be counseled by a bishop. It's where the emperor is going to hear sermons. And so that bishop, he just is important. So much so that the canons of one council say, He's the second most important bishop in the world after Rome because Constantinople is the second most important city after Rome. So it's not apostolic, but it is listed in the patriarchs, the bib top five bishops. In terms of importance of the cities, Constantinople, obviously a big deal. Rome, heart of the Roman Empire, at least it was at one point, still extremely important, great, powerful city in the West. You also have, as I mentioned, the city Antioch in Syria. Antioch is a major center of commerce, a major center of learning. It is a global capital and extremely important. And then a perhaps even more important city, Alexandria in Egypt. Alexandria is the heart of one of the great breadbaskets of the Roman Empire. So a ton of grain is grown in North Africa. It is shipped through Alexandria. It is one of the commercial hearts of the empire and like a giant bustling city, best library in the world, great center of learning. So you have these four really important cities. And then you have Jerusalem, which is basically like a walled village in the middle of nowhere. It's not even called Jerusalem anymore at this time. It's called Aelia Capitolina because... At one point in the 130s, an emperor came in, demolished everything, and said, I'm just going to rename the city after me. So Jerusalem is definitely not a global center. But again, that's where Jesus was preaching and teaching and crucified and resurrected. So they add it to the list. These five patriarchs or five super bishops are actually still really important, by the way. So the one in Rome, still called the Pope, head of the Roman Catholic Church, the one in Alexandria, also called the Pope, head of the Coptic Church, uh, the big branch of the uh, Oriental Orthodox Church, the one in Constantinople is called the Ecumenical Patriarch, he's the kind of titular head of Eastern Orthodoxy, and the one in Antioch is the head of the Antiochian Church. If you go to an Antiochian Orthodox Church, there might be a picture of their patriarch on the wall somewhere. And then the Patriarch of Jerusalem is still the patriarch of this large swath of the Middle East and uh, is the bishop of this very holy city. So these are still really important positions in both the Roman Catholic and the various Orthodox churches, the Eastern Orthodox and the Oriental Orthodox churches. So at this time, they're all 
quite important. And there might be some sort of hierarchy among them, but none of them agree on that hierarchy. So everybody says Rome is not number one in the sense of being the boss of the others, but he is the first among equals. So if you're at a dinner party and someone's going to say the prayer, if it's all the patriarchs together, they would look to Rome and say, no, no, why don't you say the blessing, Rome? Um, If there is a dispute between two patriarchs, they might appeal to Rome and Rome might decide between them. But it's not as though Rome says, now we're going to all wear t-shirts at uh, the Divine Liturgy and all the other patriarchs are like, okay, yeah, let's switch to t-shirts. So Rome has this first among equals authority. But then who is second among the equals? Well, Alexandria has a high claim to be one of the most important cities in the world and the greatest cities of learning. So for the Alexandrians, it's clear. It's the Patriarch of Alexandria. Like, it's completely obvious. If you are in Constantinople, you would say, wait, we are what Rome used to be. We're the actual center of the empire. This is where the emperor lives. This is where all the money is, all the power is, all the decisions get made. Clearly, our bishop, he's number one after Rome, like without question. If you're in Antioch, you might say, hey, this is where Christians were first called Christians. This is the oldest great center of Christian learning, of Christian theology. Like what we do here in Antioch, this is what started everything that you guys do. And if you're in Jerusalem, you might say, well, I mean, we're, we're Jerusalem. We're a tiny city. We don't have a lot of influence, but we are Jerusalem, Holy Land. Normally, it doesn't really matter because it's not as though one bishop is making the rules for the other bishops. It's not as though there are that many moments of extreme contention where the two bishops are in a room and they're arguing about something and somebody's got to be right. It just doesn't come up very much. In North Africa, everybody looks to the Patriarch of Alexandria. He's the guy. In Syria, in the Middle East, everybody looks to the Patriarch of Antioch. He's the guy. In the West, it's Rome. And in the tiny surroundings of Jerusalem, maybe at this time, it's Jerusalem. So it's not like there's this constant uh, horse race to be the first. It's just kind of an assumption on a lot of their parts that like, yeah, I'm the first after Rome. So in Antioch, there's this great tradition of learning and theology, and they do theology in a very particular way. This is one of the great seats of orthodoxy. There was nothing um, negative about their theology. But in the late 4th century, some of their theologians take a little bit of a rationalist turn. So you have a kind of chain of theology that goes from a guy called Diodor of Tarsus to Theodore of Mopsuestia to one of his students, who's a monk called Nestorius. And for monks doing theology in their monk cells, talking theology with the other monks, if you go a little far afield, probably no one's going to notice except the other monks, and they might go tell the abbot, and the abbot might say, knock it off, you're taking this too far. But Nestorius, this good, simple monk, becomes Archbishop of Constantinople. And so his rationalist theology moves from being a possible source of debate among monks in the refectory at night to being what is preached to the emperor and his entire court. So he has a direct line to the most powerful person 
on planet Earth who is making policies for the world and to some extent influencing the policies of the church, this is the guy who's telling him how it should be done theologically. And his rationalizing theology starts to cause some major waves. In the wake of Constantinople, everyone is on the same page in terms of who Christ is. He is 100% God and 100% human. Everybody in all these different places, Antioch, Alexandria, Rome, Constantinople, Jerusalem, everybody's fine with that. But they start asking, what does that mean, fully human and fully divine? Like, how, how can you be one person who is both these things? And so there's one part of the church, like in the discussion at Nicaea, Constantinople, there's one part of the church that says, man, it's mystery. Like, you're not gonna pick this apart, figure it out. Jesus is fully God. He is fully human. That's, that's what we believe in. But then there was another side that wanted to say, yeah, but let's analyze that. Let's kind of pick it apart. Let's break it down such that we can draw a diagram of it and teach it to a five-year-old. And Nestorius was one of these folks. So it has to be said at this point that Nestorius is a very faithful Christian. He is trying to hold the Orthodox perspective and rationalizing it a bit. Nestorianism turns into something very different. So Nestorius himself has this idea that Christ is the union of the word of God, the eternal Logos, and the son of Mary. So you have this cosmic being called the word of God, and then you have this boy Jesus who is the son of Mary, and there is this fusion, which is the Christ. So the principle of the union being that the person of each has been taken by the other, so that there is one person of two in union. Well, what does that mean? I'm not entirely sure. It's a bit over my head, and I think it was over the heads of everybody because it was not very clear what he meant by person taking the person of the other. But basically, the church was like, wait, you think that there is a guy called Jesus who is the son of Mary, and then in a sense, this being called the word, and they are sort of like united in agreement. They are agreeing to sort of take on each other's personhood and work together. That doesn't sound like one human being. That doesn't sound like one divine being. That sounds like a human being and a divine being starting a business together. So Nestorius, monk from Antioch, who becomes Archbishop of Constantinople, he gets a letter in the mail from the Patriarch of Alexandria in Egypt, Cyril of Alexandria, because he has read the stuff that Nestorius has been saying, and he is horrified. And what has come to his ears is something that has really horrified even the people of Constantinople, which is that his Nestorius is saying you should stop using the term Theotokos. So Theotokos at this time, and still for the Eastern Orthodox, was the primary way that you talk about the Virgin Mary. Theos in in Greek is God, so it's Theotokos, bearer. She is the bearer of God, the mother of God. So there's been a lot of history of veneration of Mary, of asking the prayers of Mary, of statues of Mary, of icons of Mary, um, honor being paid, reverence being paid to the Virgin Mary throughout the history of Christianity. But this issue actually has very little to do with that. 
So this is not a question of how much honor do we pay to the Virgin Mary. The big question here was, who did she give birth to? God-bearer implies she gives birth to God the Son. What Nestorius wanted to say was, we shouldn't call her the God-bearer. We should call her the human-bearer. Let's call her Anthrotokos, the man-bearer, the one who bore this man, Jesus, who was in sort of perfect unity and harmony with the cosmic word of God. The other half of this highly significant partnership between two beings that take on one another's personhood that results in the salvation of the world. So she is the man-bearer. She gave birth to the man-half, not the god-half. Not only does this cause riots in the street of Constantinople, it's causing waves all over the Greco-Roman world. And so Cyril writes this letter. It's called the second letter of Cyril. And in it, he says, Nestorius, you've got it all wrong. You may be the patriarch of Constantinople. You may be carrying on this long-standing tradition of Antiochian theology, but you lost the plot. This is not what Christians believe. This is not what's in scripture. So what's in scripture, what Christians believe is this, that Christ is fully God, fully human, and in that union, they are totally united together, and neither nature disappears, neither is abolished. He is just one person who is God and human. So a human being, so this is sort of set that aside for a sec, if you think about what a human being is, I am mind, I am emotion, I am thoughts, I am the dream I had last night, I am my longing for a hamburger right now, that's me. I am also fingernails and toenails, I am white blood cells and red blood cells, I am heart, lungs, I am all that. That's me. If I try and take away one or the other, that's not really me per se. It might be a corpse, or it might be, you know, the way you remember my thoughts and dreams or whatever. But like, if I try and sort of take my emotional life and go set it over on the other side of the room and examine it, how do I do that? Like, I don't have an emotional life separate from my brain and my lungs and my eyes and my ears. And by the same token, I don't have, like, physical personhood separate from having a mind, having consciousness, having will, being able to move my arms and legs and so forth. I'm just a united person, even though I do have these two very different natures, a kind of physical nature and a mental nature, an emotional nature, a spiritual nature, whatever. So in the same way, Cyril kind of wants to show Nestorius, Jesus is just Jesus. He is fully divine. He is fully human. You can't take away either part. You can't separate them out. They're not these discrete beings who come together in a relationship. He's just a person, a fully God and fully human. Nestorius responds with a letter just restating his own position. In case you didn't understand me, here's what I believe. And this really riles Cyril up. And Cyril is not just a gifted theologian, an archbishop, he is great at PR. So he has all these different folks in Constantinople, in Rome, even in Antioch, trying to kind of shake the trees and let everybody know, Nestorius, he's got it wrong, he's a heretic, he's doing bad stuff over in Constantinople. The agents at Rome have a lot of success. They go to the Pope, they tell the Pope what is going on in Constantinople, he is horrified, and he gets one of his 
top theologians, John Cassian, who we talked a bit about in the, the episodes on monasticism, one of the great um, chroniclers of monastic spirituality, uh, really one of the great minds of his era, he gets him to write a response to Nestorius. And Cyril says, oh, this is like year 430, you, you guys are writing during Nestorius, let me just, I'm going to slip something in the envelope too. And so Cyril writes his own response, and together they send Nestorius, this letter of John Cassian with the Pope's authority, the Pope's seal on it, and the 12 anathemas of Cyril. These are Cyril's absolute kind of position paper stances on why Nestorius is wrong. For Cyril, everything hinges on a term from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. In the seventh chapter, Isaiah has this prophecy, this vision, that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. That this boy will be born, and he will be with us in our nature, with us and on our terms, but also be God. The fullness of God Almighty will be with us as a brother and as a friend and as someone undergoing what we undergo, undergoing thirst and hunger, undergoing poverty and physical violence, that God himself will be entirely with us. And this is who Jesus is for Cyril and really for the the Orthodox side of the church in these debates, that Jesus is not a collaboration between a very faithful man and the Word of God, that Jesus is the Word of God incarnate, God the Son incarnate. So he says, Emmanuel is very God, and the Holy Virgin is the mother of God. She bore the Word made flesh. Cyril says he truly died, and he truly gave life. For Cyril, this is God the Son actually dying on the cross. It is the source of all life, the one who gives life, the one through whom all things were created, who goes down to death, meets death face to face, and destroys death. And this is not sort of abstract philosophical splitting hairs. This is really important stuff. Because if Jesus is truly God with us, God for us, then that means something very different than a partnership between a kind of divine being and a human being. And this is also what's reflected in scripture as mind boggling and strange and wonderful as it is. So John says in the beginning was the word and the word stood before God, the word was God and the word took on flesh. But also Paul writing in Colossians says, when you ask Paul about Jesus, he says, in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created. In Jesus, everything was created in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him, through Christ, and not only through him, but for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So for Paul, Jesus is infinitely before the creation. He is co-eternal with God. There was nothing before Christ, and all things were created in and through and for Christ. But not only that, in him, all things hold together. So in Jesus, in this kind, loving, good, humble rabbi, the whole creation is held together. We have this idea of creation, which really comes from 17th century deism, in which God basically like set everything up, pressed play, and then stepped back. Okay, 
Genesis, seven days, bang, 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 it's done, I'm out of here. But that's not the Jewish or the early Christian understanding of creation. Instead, creation is an ongoing, constant act. God is holding the whole creation in being from millisecond to millisecond. And according to Paul, that is, it's happening in and through God the Son. In him, all things hold together. So this means that for Paul, the night that Jesus was born in a stable, he was also holding that stable in being. He was holding Mary in life, even though he was this tiny baby who was dependent on Mary for life. I mean, it's totally crazy. It's insane. It is incomprehensible mystery. And this is what the church proclaimed. And this is what Nestorius was trying to make some sense out of. So now you have four super bishops very much at odds. So Nestorius in Constantinople writes to his old friend John of Antioch, who's the patriarch of Antioch, and he's like, I'm just doing Antiochian theology here. I don't see what the problem is. And John says, yeah, that makes sense. I see what you mean. I guess we're on the same page. And then Cyril in Alexandria in Egypt is writing to the Bishop of Rome, to the Pope, one Pope to another, saying, these guys are nuts. They're completely rejecting John, they're rejecting Colossians, they're rejecting this biblical understanding of Christ, and they're making something up. They're going to be, they're worshiping this idol of a collaboration between a human and a divine figure. That's not Christianity. And the Bishop of Rome says, right on, I'm with you. So now you have these four super bishops who are all at loggerheads. And this is the kind of situation that could tear the empire apart, as crazy as that sounds, because in each location, this is seen as a central issue. And so this threatens the stability and the unity of the Roman Empire. So the emperor, Theodosius II, in 431, calls for the third great ecumenical council of the church. The council is to be held in the city of Ephesus on the western coast of Turkey. It's a major port city, or was back then. It was abandoned later because it got surrounded by swamps and everybody got malaria and they were like, we're out of here. But at this time, it was a very important city. It's where uh, the letter to the Ephesians is addressed, for example. And Cyril gets there early. He wants to be in a solid position of power for this council. He finds an ally in Bishop Memnon, who's the Bishop of Ephesus, and they're both horrified at these Nestorian teachings. Nestorius and his friend John of Antioch, the Patriarch of Antioch, they're going to come blazing in, and they're going to take over the council. This is on his home turf. Ephesus is not far from Constantinople. This is going to be an easy victory. But unfortunately, John and his monks encounter some pretty rough weather, and they don't make it in time. So the council opens, and it is Cyril of Alexandria, and then Roman legates from Rome, these folks who have come from Rome who are siding with Cyril, and they're just barreling through all this legislation. And Nestorius is like, hey, wait, can we just wait for the Antiochians? We're missing one of the big patriarchs here. Like, let's just put this on hold. But Cyril keeps barreling through. And so Nestorius says, forget about it. I'm out of here. John and his monks arrive. So now you have a separate synod happening down the street. So you have the uh, Egyptian-Roman Council of Ephesus, and then you have the Antiochian-Constantinopolitan, the Antioch and Constantinople Council of Ephesus, and they're both happening simultaneously, and they're both passing legislation. It's a crazy situation. 
So on one side, the Roman Egyptian council, they say, down with Nestorius, he is deposed, he is no longer Archbishop of Constantinople. And what's more, Antioch, as a kind of a punishment for supporting him, we think we need to actually recognize Jerusalem as a real patriarchate and give Jerusalem a big old chunk of Antioch's land that they were sort of uh, being patriarch over, take away some of their importance and give that to Jerusalem. The other council, the council of Nestorius and the Antiochians, they say, okay, Cyril, he's deposed. He is no longer the Archbishop of Alexandria. Get that guy out of here. And for good measure, we're going to get Memnon out of here too, the poor Bishop of Ephesus. All he really did was just agree with Cyril, let him use his churches. But they were like, that guy, he's also gone. So both sides now send emissaries to Theodosius II. And each one is saying, the council's over, here are our decisions. No, no, the council's over, here are our decisions. Theodosius smacks his head and he's like, I'm trying to create unity here. And now I've got even more division. Okay, you know what I'm going to do? I say I ratify all the acts of the great ecumenical council of Ephesus. And so the one side says, wait, you mean our acts? And the other one says, no, 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 you mean our acts? And he says, all the acts, I ratify them all. So he treats them as though they've been one united council, when in fact they are two councils battling each other. And he just says, everything you did is totally kosher. So now, Nestorius, Archbishop of Constantinople, is deposed. Cyril of Alexandria is deposed. And poor Memnon of Ephesus is also deposed. Not only are they deposed, they get thrown in jail. They were all jailed as having acted, in a sense, against the interests of the empire or in bad faith or whatever they're accused of. So, poor Nestorius says, you know what? I wish I hadn't started any of this. I wish I had never become archbishop. I would be happy just to go back to my old monastery in Antioch and go back to being a monk. And everybody says, that sounds like a fine solution. Why don't you do that? Cyril says, you know... I'm really glad I started all this. I would like to go back to being Archbishop of Alexandria. And the emperor says, well, you're deposed. You can't just do that. But Cyril somehow gets out of jail, maybe by finding a friendly guard, maybe by finding a guard that was amenable to receiving some compensation, and goes back to Alexandria. And everyone just cheers and says, hooray, the Archbishop has returned. So he goes back to being Archbishop of Alexandria. Memnon, we assume, goes back to his see at some point. So now you have this crazy situation in which... The Archbishop of Alexandria is saying one thing. The Archbishop of Antioch is saying something completely different. There's a lot of hurt feelings. Everybody's still angry. It's just maddening. And Theodosius II is tearing his hair out. So in 433, Antioch and Alexandria, they come together. Cyril and John come together and they find, with the help of this one specific theologian, they find a compromise. They find a formula for the divinity and the humanity of Christ that both of them says, oh yeah, this this makes sense. This protects the mystery. This gets as deep into it as we want to get into it without overturning anything in scripture and tradition. And this is their formula. So the formula of peace in 433 AD, that Christ was perfect God and perfect man consisting of rational soul and body, of one substance with the Father in his Godhead, of one substance with us in his manhood, so that there is a union of two natures, on which ground we confess Christ to be one and Mary to be the mother of God. So now, Cyril, John, 
everybody's in accord. The new Archbishop of Constantinople says this is fantastic, and everyone lives happily ever after. Until about 466, by which time they're all dead, and there's a whole lot of new arguing among all their successors. So next time we will get into that argumentation, we will see what leads up to the, maybe in one sense, the greatest of the four ecumenical councils, or maybe second after Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon. Thanks for joining me for the History of Christianity. 